This is the always interesting and never boring Far Middle Podcast. Up and running with episode 125. Happy Columbus Day to all my fellow Italian-Americans. A national holiday in many countries of the Americas and elsewhere, including, of course, in the United States, which officially celebrates the anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the Americas. But it also serves as another opportunity to celebrate being Italian. Sports dedication time. We first release this episode on October 11th, which is the anniversary, unfortunately, of the passing of one of my favorite baseball players from my favorite era, the 1970s. A player I consider to be the greatest second baseman to ever play the game, Joe Leonard Morgan. 22 glorious seasons in Major League Baseball starting in 1963, integral part of the Big Red Machine in the 1970s, which is perhaps the greatest dynasty in baseball during an era that's noted for its dynasties when you look at 1970s baseball. And do any of you constant listeners know which team Joe Morgan started his career with? Well, it was the Houston Colt 45s, which became the Houston Astros a few years after the expansion franchise came into being and when they moved into the Astrodome. Then he uh, went to the Cincinnati Reds, of course, and made history. And then Joe Morgan played for a few other teams after the Reds until he retired in 1984. He won two World Series championships with the Reds, 75 and 76, two-time National League MVP in each of those World Series championship years, Hall of Famer, and a great broadcaster to boot after he retired. And he was just an unbelievable prototypical all-around player. When you say all-around baseball player, Joe Morgan is sort of the the epitome of that. Smart, high baseball IQ, um, fifth all-time in Major League Baseball history for career walks. He was an excellent fielder, five gold gloves, and he was famous for using a very small glove, um, not those oversized baskets that you see today. He said that the smaller glove gave him a better feel. Excellent base runner. Most people don't realize this. He's 11th all-time on the stolen base career list. And he had great power for a second baseman. And for his size, he was no stranger to hitting the home run. Yeah, if I'm building the dream baseball roster, I'm picking Joe Morgan as my second baseman. And that's no offense to Jackie Robinson or Rod Carew or Rogers Hornsby. And this is coming from a Pirates fan who suffered a lot of disappointment as a young kid when the Big Red Machine probably stopped the uh, the Buccos from another World Series title or two in their heyday in the 1970s era. Big Red Machine beat the Pirates more than once in the National League Championship Series in the 1970s. Episode 125 goes to Joe Morgan. May he rest in peace. Okay, for what is it now? Five straight episodes, I think, that we've been diving deep on singular meaty issues It's been awesomely fun. Hope you've enjoyed it. But the content keeps stacking and piling up behind us. You know, the world doesn't stop spinning. And there's all kinds of of connections that are piling up to make on episodes of the uh, the far middle. So we need a bit of a palate cleanse on content, which calls for another, that's right, lightning round of the far middle. Is this the third one in our history? I have to check the, uh, the archives to be sure. But either way, let's have some fun and change up the pace a bit with this episode. Of course, we will do the lightning round in a sequencing that continues to pay our respects to the great Dr. James Burke, who was the host of BBC's Connections science series from the same late 1970s and early 1980s when Joe Morgan was doing his best work 
on the baseball field. Let's hit the clock and let's get a strong jump out of the blocks. And we'll start by making a connection to the subject of the Connections series itself, which was science and technology. A lot has changed in the world of science since uh, particularly the pandemic has come and gone. And much of that change, unfortunately, is not for the better. It's been for the worse. And um, when you hear claims that we should be following the science, today that's almost laughable when you consider the extremely poor quality of much of what the science constitutes again these days. There's a gentleman by the name of John Ioannidis who's done a lot of work and performed quite a bit of research on the issue of uh, what's become of science and the scientific method. And he's looked at explaining and done a great job, I think, of illustrating how democracy can't function when the citizens or the public is fed a constant diet of either half-truths or worse yet, disinformation with uh, dissenting voices being excluded or, or being consciously excluded uh, from the overall debate and, and with regard to the overall assessments. And some of his views were of particular interest that I wanted to share with you that I think you'd find uh, very uh, enlightening as well. One of those was that how some people or in instances, corporations, organizations, um, certainly the, the lobbying industry, they see a crisis come. It could be COVID-19. It could be a different crisis as an opportunity, not so much a threat, but an opportunity to establish some version of an ideological view or slant that they desire, which in reality ends up benefiting sort of a, a small minority of those that are very confident in that ideology and their view, uh, version or view of truth or science or whatever sort of tag they want to put to in the end what is ultimately ideology. And the population that is affected by this at large, what would they benefit from instead? Well, a lot more scientific skepticism, again, challenging the scientific consensus. And to be a scientific skeptic, you don't have to be an expert. You know, I think he does a great job, Ioannidis does, of pointing out you don't need a PhD in some uh, technical field of science to play the role of a scientific skeptic. But, you know, benefiting society would for more skepticism in science instead of purging that skepticism uh, by trying to purify information or what most people would call or consider censoring. And it's especially important in the realm of scientific debate. So anyone who thinks it's possible to sort of cleanse science of error through censorship, uh, through rigid ideology or adhering to rigid ideology, they don't understand how science works or how evidence needs to be accumulated in the first place. Disinformation and um, censorship in the arena of science, it's a great connection to a George Orwell quote, one of my favorite authors. What did he say? Ignorance is strength. That was right out of 1984. If you're a censor uh, or you're sort of the, uh, the big brother state, that is an absolutely true quote, which, by the way, serves as a great connection to our next topic. And that's what's going on at the United Nations Development Program, the UNDP. UNDP recently rolled out what it's calling an automated anti-disinformation tool, and it is named this automated anti-disinformation tool iVerify. Now, what does iVerify hope to do? It hopes to support election integrity, and it's using a multi-stakeholder approach that spans the public and private sectors to do what? Well, in the words of the UNDP, to provide national actors with a support package to enhance identification, monitoring, and response capacity 
to threats to information integrity. That should worry you. And the idea here with iVerify is that anybody will be able to send articles to the iVerify team of supposedly local highly trained fact checkers, and that team will determine if an article is true or not. Well, that sounds like Big Brother, and that sounds like censorship to me. There's a website uh, for UNDP, and that website makes the case for iVerify as an instrument against what they deem as information pollution. Now, what's information pollution? They say that's an overabundance of harmful, useless, or otherwise misleading information that blunts the citizen's capacity to make informed decisions. Basically, we'll tell you what you need to know and when you need to know it. And this uh, subsequent censorship that could ensue from iVerify of things like dissenting perspectives and maybe inconvenient information that's inconsistent with the ideology, the preferred ideology, uh, that obviously would have not just the approval and the stamp of the UN, but along with it, the, uh, the global international reach that the UN enjoys. So pretty serious and sobering uh, stuff from the UNDP and iVerify. One of my favorite contemporary authors when it comes to policy, Michael Schellenberger, um, he describes this type of a, of a system or scheme such as iVerify. He references it as the censorship industrial complex which I've always found uh, interesting. Uh, again, I love Schellenberger's work. Give some of his books a read if you haven't had the chance to. We can connect that to what's going on perhaps right down the hall within the United Nations, this time with the IPCC, which of course is involved with all things climate change, climate policy, climate modeling related. There is an author within the IPCC network. His name's Piers Forster, and he had two interesting quotes I wanted to share. One, generally, science is still lagging policy. Now, that's a simple sentence, but that is a uh, that is a frightening sentence. It tells you from the perspective of IPCC or those leading it that science is subservient to policy, and it should be the other way around. Science should inform policy or help make informed policy. I thought that was a very interesting, although simple, sentence. Second quote from Mr. Forster, we need a living laboratory mentality to test ideas in open and transparent ways to really learn about how to transform society. Otherwise, we'll be going with technologies according to who shouts loudest rather than the best. Another frightening quote, you know, a living laboratory mentality to test ideas that affects everybody and everyone when it comes to energy sort of access and energy affordability with policies that affect quality of life for billions of people on the planet. I don't think we want to just sort of do a ready, fire, aim type approach. Let's think things through. And again, have science, have data, technology, help inform policy versus giving a go with certain policies that favor certain ideologies and then figuring it out uh, as things play out from there. Less than optimal to say the least. The United Nations efforts these days serve as a great connection to what's going on at the World Bank. The World Bank has a new leader, Mr. Banga, who is an American, by the way, an American businessman, and he is now uh, running the World Bank, and he is going to be leading a charge of an effort to expand lending capacity through the World Bank to fight climate change. That's now the top priority of the World Bank. And that means that the World Bank and the lending sort of vehicles that uh, it uses is going to have to tolerate more risk by making additional loans with its existing funding. So it's going to amp up the risk with lending to nations to, to help fight climate change. 
Now, a lot of developing nations, interestingly, they're pretty cautious of the climate change effort in financing because they worry that it's going to result in fewer resources for helping to reduce poverty, and it might sort of prohibit or limit the ability to address other economic development programs. And I'm with them on those concerns. I agree wholeheartedly. But uh, that's not going to deter the World Bank or its new leader. Uh, Mr. Banga, in a speech, recently said that uh, we're going to need to get the private sector to be a constructive player in this mission, using his words. Whenever I hear phrases from entities like the World Bank that we need to get the private sector, that uh, to me sounds a lot like planned coercion. And what does being a constructive player in this mission, what does that actually mean? The devil is always in the details when it comes to these, these global types of institutions like the World Bank. Time will tell. And that connects us to going from World Bank to the Federal Reserve, the central bank in this nation, and maybe time telling with World Bank, not needing time to tell with the Fed because we've already seen over the past number of years where we're at. There's always been serious questions about um, the Federal Reserve's mission and whether it has the authority to engage in things like quantitative easing. That's always been a debate. That was true back in 2008 when we had the global financial crisis, and that's been true ever since. Now, the argument back in 2008 was that we were in a crisis situation, special circumstances, and when you looked at the Fed's charter back in, when was it, 1913, um, since we're in a crisis in 2008, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But since then, you know, quantitative easing, of course, has continued at a, a massive pace. I saw some data recently that I wanted to share with you. The compounded annual growth rate of the Fed's um, reserve assets, basically its balance sheet. If you looked at the compounded annual growth rate from way back uh, in the early 90s, let's call it, to the global financial crisis, it was compounding in an annual growth rate of under 6%, 5.5%, give or take. Um, you look at what it's done since the global financial crisis, again, using that situation and not letting it go to waste, not letting a good crisis go to waste. The compounded annual growth rate of Fed Reserve assets has been an astounding 16 plus percent. And of course, that balance sheet of the Fed peaked out just around, just shy of $9 trillion. The Fed's moves, the power that it's exerted, that balance sheet that I just spoke of, it has completely distorted capital markets, decision-making and behavior all throughout the economy and society, including, of course, the private sector. Savers, of course, were penalized for years because they received negative real yields on deposits. Corporations, you know, they had an era of basically not just cheap debt, but in some instances, free money. So what did they do? Uh, for a lot of corporations and large companies, financial engineering became more effective and more of a priority than execution in its day-to-day -day operations or even things like R&D, which was unfortunate. If you think what's going on with the World Bank and the Federal Reserve um, is substantial when it comes to uh, distorting capital flows across economies and societies, consider what our own Treasury Secretary is doing alongside the IRS. Secretary Yellen is working on a global set of tax rules that will require a global revenue service, something alongside the Internal Revenue Service or IRS. And it's a very complicated set of rules and, and the plan, far beyond my basic understanding. But what would it amount to would be effectively a global minimum tax. And this would also mean 
that it would be a situation where you would see taxes that would be paid by an American business or an American individual that would effectively be transferred to someone else or something else beyond the borders of the United States. Now, whether it's constitutional or not, um, that will be interesting to watch. We know that states can't do this within the United States constitutionally. I'm not sure what makes Treasury Secretary Yellen think that she can do this regulatorily for tax revenue leaving the country. But again, another example and another connection to make when it comes to overreach of institutions when it comes to the private sector and value appropriation. Government and institutional overreach, it's not just uh, specific to federal or, or global uh, institutions with monetary policy and, and whatnot. It also affects each and every consumer. And 2023 has been a very active year on that front. If you remember at the beginning of the year, we had the Consumer Product Safety Commissioner, Mr. Trumka Jr., who said something about uh, natural gas stoves that created a huge debate. He said, this is a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe can be banned. Well, he said that and then the debate ensued. But the regulatory state has been hard at work on this topic all year long, and they're not stopping until they're going to be stopped. Um, just think of all the consumer products that have been impacted this year. So light bulbs, in addition to gas stoves. With light bulbs starting the summer, commercial retailers are no longer able to sell incandescent light bulbs without incurring a significant penalty, basically pricing them right out of the market. Your home furnace, same situation uh, as the, you found with stoves. So if furnaces run on natural gas, there's going to be uh, fuel neutral efficiency standards that the energy department has instituted that's going to disproportionately burden those gas models of furnaces relative to electric ones. Washing machines and dishwashers, uh, they found themselves in the sites of the energy department, both uh, with regard to regulations and energy efficiency standards that will impact the cost of the appliances as well as reduce the quality. So the ability for the dishwasher to wash dishes or the washing machine to effectively wash clothes will be impacted as well. Air conditioners, also the energy department going after them with uh, new efficiency standards that are basically going to increase the cost of a new air conditioning unit by about $1,000. And then I also saw something recently about ceiling fans of all things. So anything in your home that you plug in or that is wired or that utilizes something like natural gas as a fuel source, your government through entities like the energy department is finding more and more creative ways under cover of human health concerns or code red, climate change, that type of thing, to make it either more scarce, more costly, or less efficient, or all of the above. If you're concerned what's going on with government regulation and the appliances in your home, well, you got to make a connection because you ain't seen nothing yet when you consider what's going on with government regulations and the car in your driveway. The new proposed regulations on auto emissions from the EPA are going to require that 60% of new car sales be EVs by 2030 and two-thirds be EVs by 2032. Compare that to what we got today, 6% of the cars on the road were EVs today, and they have little to no environmental benefit when you look at the reality of their footprints and emission profiles. Plus, there's also this issue of efficiency. We, we saw this with um, washing machines and dishwashers, same with EVs. Gas-powered cars, you can refuel those in, what, five minutes at a gas station? But when you recharge an EV, it takes 45 minutes. 
And if somebody's in front of you at the charging station, that can double the wait time. And by the way, you don't want to let your EV battery level go below 20% for margin of safety. So that also cuts down on effective range as well. Now, when you start to look at the implications, run some of the math on these regulations and government's heavy handedness when it comes to consumer choice, the private sector, you see how absurd this is becoming. The Department of Transportation, I can connect to this uh, for you next to illustrate it. $26 million Department of Transportation wants to give to the state of North Dakota for EV charging stations. That works out to $68,000 per registered EV in North Dakota. Ridiculous. Alaska is not much better. It's going to get $52 million for charging stations from Department of Transportation. That works out to about $40,000 per registered EV in Alaska. And this also, of course, connects to policy moves and what's going on in our large urban areas and big cities. We can connect to New York City, which recently instituted its congestion pricing in parts of Manhattan that works out to over 20 bucks per vehicle. But that's nothing compared to what's going on with the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City. Now, that's a 100-year-old institution. It's got a great history. A lot of movies had scenes that were shot there. The NFL draft was held there decades ago. So the Roosevelt Hotel is about as historic as it gets in New York City. But now it is serving as an asylum seeker arrival center for New York. And that means that New York City is going to or is paying the owners of the hotel, which, by the way, is Pakistani International Airlines, a corporation, about 200 bucks a night for about a thousand rooms over a multi-year period. You run the math, that works out cumulatively to over $200 million dollars of a transfer payment from the city of New York or the taxpayers who are paying taxes to New York City to effectively Pakistani International Airlines. So that the Roosevelt Hotel, that iconic uh, symbol in many ways of New York City and that rich history of over a century, can basically fulfill the role as an asylum seeker arrival center. Now, we've been making all these connections of uh, inefficient government and, and heavy handedness of a regulatory state. But there are positive connections to make, and I'll, I'll give you one. Florida, it's got a state budget that's about half of New York's state budget. So Florida spends about half the dollars that New York does on an annual basis. But guess what? Florida's got 2 million more people. So government can be efficient, or at least much more efficient, than some of these uh, poor illustrations or examples of connections that we've been making. But overall, uh, we do have a, a major problem when it comes to government accountability and I can make that point connecting to what's going on with the federal government, which has been a, a big part of the problem. There's 2.2 million civilian employees in the federal government. So that excludes the military. But of those 2.2 million civilian employees, only 4,000 of them are political appointees that the president can basically not just appoint but remove at will. The rest, the vast majority, are career bureaucrats. And those career bureaucrats, they're not elected by the American people. They're not appointed by the president who's elected by the American people. And they're making more and more major policy decisions that are affecting everyone's lives. So the civil service protections that are in place, it makes removing these employees incredibly difficult. I mean, to remove a civilian federal employee for cause is damn near impossible. And guess what? Those civil service employees, they know that. When the bureaucratic state realizes that there's not going to be a culture of accountability or consequences for things like expanding power base or mission creep, then you start to see 
illogical outcomes. And I'll give you an illustration that can serve as our next connection. The U.S. Agency for International Development said earlier this year it's going to issue grants to companies that source critical minerals, not from the United States, but from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, companies will get these grants that were willing to support the miners in that nation. Now, the Labor Department of our own federal government is also working with officials in that nation, the Congo, to help improve working conditions and oversight. There was a quote from the official here of our federal government that I found to be interesting. We are building a pipeline of Congolese investment opportunities to attract more U.S. investment into the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. That was from an official at the Agency for International Development. So again, on one hand, you've got um, the bureaucratic state in the United States with the federal government working night and day to eradicate the jobs of domestic miners, whether they be coal miners or other types of domestic energy jobs, and at the same time working night and day to concern themselves with what's going on with the job situation and labor standards in the DR Congo. Doesn't make much sense, but there you have it in today's regulatory state run amok. And the lack of accountability in the bureaucratic state, mission creep, etc., that bleeds into geopolitics. A great connection to show that's the case is this back and forth debate that's going on with climate uh, change negotiations between China and the United States. You know, it sort of hit a, um, a tough period here with uh, Taiwan and whatnot. But you've got our own Secretary of State, Mr. Blinken, who has said that suspending climate cooperation doesn't punish the United States. It punishes the world particularly the developing world. I don't agree with that. In fact, I've got a 180-degree opposite view. I think suspending climate cooperation between China and the United States, especially as United States officials define that cooperation, will actually help the developing world. But that's uh, neither here nor there. Uh, there was a good exchange in bar between the two countries uh, that followed that. Uh, there was a quote from, I believe it was the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to China, who said, the U.S. is acting on climate change. But then on social media, you had uh, China's foreign ministry tweet back or X back, whatever you call it these days. Good to hear. But what matters is, can the U.S. deliver? So in some ways, I, I think and find that China's almost goading us into sort of poor decisions and our, our zest to get to some sort of climate accord or climate agreement with China. And by the way, Washington and the Americans, were still insisting that climate is a standalone issue when it comes to discussions and negotiations with China. Uh, that is a foolish um, approach to take. Everything when it comes to China is interconnected with regard to their larger strategy and their long-term objectives. And to think you can separate or segment one thing out from the, the bigger picture, uh, that's a fool's approach when it comes to dealing with the worthy adversary that is China and the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, China's playing chess. We're playing checkers with our bureaucrats and our political leaders in the arena of geopolitics. Just to prove a point, make the connection to what's going on with China's long view and their strategy. It's an imperialist one. Make no mistake about it. Look at ports across the globe. China right now controls 15 of the globe's major ports. That's either through leases or building them or sort of refurbishing them. And that's a, that's a, again, a long game that's very farsighted strategically. And it's not just something that they're doing randomly. It's something that's got a, a very concerted, long-term sort of uh, objective in mind. They also control the Panama Canal. 
Um, they basically control the Mediterranean at the entry points to the Med Sea. And then when you look at Europe, Antwerp and Rotterdam, those are in the hands of the Chinese as well. Look at what they've done in the South China Sea, which basically from a military perspective, it's got the ability to affect or in some instances control 50% of global ocean traffic that goes through you know, that region. So you add up all these different points, 15 in total, when it comes to ports across the globe, um, that's something that the Chinese will be in a position to not just control, but to shut off if and when the time calls for it because of other geopolitical considerations. And be well assured that they'll make those decisions in their best interests and not with respect to certainly the United States or Western Republican democracy's best interests, nor in the interest of what's best for the world when it comes to climate or code red. Man, we are already out of time. That's the nature of the lightning round on the far middle. Could keep going for another hour, but we'll save those for subsequent episodes. One last connection to make for you. Just prove positive that if government is minimal and it stays out of the way, the free market, private enterprise, individual achievement, those things do really great things for society. Since 1980, okay, the global population has grown 75%. And guess what? The cost of 50 crucial life-sustaining commodities, they dropped 75% over the same period of time. Proof positive that minimal government coupled with individuals being able to achieve in a free market that's the, uh, the formula for success for society and for cultures all over the globe. One final note, happy birthday, October 11, to a Pittsburgh legend, Art Blakey, great jazz drummer, the creator of the Jazz Messengers, uh, one of the brightest lights in the history of jazz. We'll talk again next week for episode 126. Until then, whether you're listening to jazz or otherwise, stay safe. <laughs>